Good afternoon, everyone. Good to be together again. Welcome to our guest, Maya, and to those who are on the Facebook live feed. As uh, Brother Jan pointed out, we are on the 35th day of the count to Pentecost, culminating in 15 days with the day of Pentecost. And that's where I'd like to begin today. Let's go to Leviticus 23. We've been learning a lot lately about our mission as the covenant people of Israel. And in doing so, I'd like to level set where we're at in the Holy Day calendar today with the mention, the introduction of the Feast of Weeks, and at least begin here in Leviticus 23. Now, some of you may have heard this. We covered this recently in a, a small message, but for those of you who haven't heard this, I'd like to use this again to launch the sermon. In verse 1 of Leviticus 23, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. Then he begins with the weekly Sabbath. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of of the Lord in all your dwellings. Then he proceeds to talk about the annual feasts, beginning at verse 4. These are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. And then he proceeds to talk about the Passover, which we went through about five weeks ago, and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which we also partook of following the Passover. But as we launch this, I want to go back and just touch on so everybody is familiar with this word convo holy convocations this phrase holy convocation and it is used as we mentioned several times here in the book of Leviticus and specifically here in this chapter where God talks about his holy time and every single time that as, as we talked about before every single time that this word convocation is mentioned it's prefaced with the adjective holy which is important when we consider what he's talking about and again for those of you who've been around we consider we consider our gatherings, our, our Sabbath worship services, our holy convocation. We do this on a weekly basis here every Sabbath, and then we do them at the appointed times during the year, of which in two weeks, coming up on uh, two weeks from tomorrow, is the day of Pentecost, which is referenced further on, and we'll get into that in just a little bit. But again, we've come to call these gatherings, our worship services, holy convocations, and we see that listed here. For instance, in verse 7, referring back to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, on the first day you shall have a holy convocation. And that is where we gather as a group to worship God, in, to, he, to hear him speak to us through a, a servant, to also worship him in prayer, worship him in song, and then also to worship him through fellowship. However, as we also pointed out, this word, Mikra, which is the word for convocation, has to do with not just a public gathering or a meeting, which it does, but also the root word refer references back to the Hebrew word for rehearsal. So while we are convocating the entire day, which we see, let's go back to verse 2, the feast of the Lord shall be a holy convocation. So the feast days, whether it be this, this, and this uh, weekly uh, Sabbath that we partake of, or the annual feast days. And again, for those of you who are new, 
You can go all the way back to Genesis 1 and verse 14. Let's take some time to do that since we want to level set that these are not Jewish feasts. This is not the Jewish day of worship. This was the day that God set apart right from creation. In the creation account in Genesis 1, in verse 14, God said, on the fourth day, he said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven, that's Genesis 1, verse 14, to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth, and it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, obviously referring to the sun and the moon. And going back to that word for seasons, that Hebrew word for seasons is the same word that we just looked at in Leviticus 23, referencing the word feasts. And you can look that up in Strong's and confirm that. So when we consider that the sun and the moon were part of the creation account to help set aside this word for appointed times, this word that is translated as the word seasons is really the word appointed times. We see that both the sun and the moon, part of their job was to help define when God's holy time was. The sun helps us define the weekly Sabbath every seven days at the going down of the sun on day, at the end of day six, which was last night, until the going down of the sun tonight at the end of day seven. That is the holy Sabbath. Not a, not a Jewish festival, but something that God ordained from creation, and we see that, we get that from this account. And then the moon, obviously, as Brother Jan also pointed out in his introduction, that this was the 20th day of the second month, that is the purposes of the new moons, so that we know what, when the months are that define God's, God's uh, holy time. So back to Leviticus 23. That's just a bit of a, a side note. So again, these, these worship meetings that we have on a weekly and an annual basis, plus the entire Sabbath day themselves, are set-apart rehearsals that God has commanded us to partake of because he has set them from creation as appointed times. Let's drop down to verse 15. As I mentioned, we've come through Passover, we've come through the Days of Unleavened Bread, and we're looking forward to, in two weeks, the Feast of Pentecost. And in verse 15, God here, through Moses, says, And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. And count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. And then as Daniel read, it goes through the worship that they were commanded to do on that 50th day, which we will be keeping in a two weeks' time on the day of Pentecost. But what we overlook often is the process to get there. The wave sheaf offering, as, as you may or may not be aware, refers to the day after the Sabbath in the middle of the Feast of Unleavened Bread when Christ, uh, not when he was resurrected, he was resurrected at the end of the, the third day, at the end of the Sabbath, but then the following day, and we can get into that a little bit, he uh, refused to be touched by, his, by the ladies that had met him, said he needed to go to his father, and that's when he went to the father, received his glorification as the perfect sacrifice, and became that wave sheaf offering. And it's from that Sunday that we begin to count towards Pentecost. 
But here, in Leviticus 23, Moses includes this concept of the Feast of Weeks as part of his holy time. He doesn't jump right from the Unleavened Bread to Pentecost. He includes this holy time, these, these 50 days of holy time, not Sabbath holy time, and we'll, def- we'll make that distinction here in a minute, but this set-apart time of these seven weeks or these 50 days. And again, as we consider what holy time is, holy time is the time that God sets apart, that God appoints for specific time with him that he has, he has set out at creation. Some, most often, that holy time is a Sabbath. It is a non-working Sabbath. But like the Passover and like these 50 days, except for these seven days that are Sabbaths in these 50 days, this is also holy set-apart time. And that's what we're going to look into a little bit here today. Is there any significance to these 50 days? Now, locally, through our little chat room, you know that we've been counting down. We've been sending messages through our local chat room every day, making sure we know when the count is, that it's important that we keep count. But the answer, its placement here in Leviticus 23, seems clearly indicates that this is a significant time period. That as God is delineating his Sabbath and his holy days, before we even get to the Feast of Pentecost, he talks about this Feast of Weeks with the command to count. That it will ultimately end and culminate in this day of Pentecost, this holy high Sabbath, but this period of 50 days is important as well. And when God commands us to do something, which he has, count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, the day after the Sabbath in the middle of the Feast of Love and Bread, seven Sabbaths, so that's counting seven full weeks, and then he additionally tells us to count 50 days. So it's not just the weeks that we're to count. We, at the end of uh, today, we've come to the end of the fifth week, but he also tells us to count the days. Why does he do this? Why is there a command here? We follow everything else here. We do our best to walk through Leviticus 23, and as we learn and we follow the, the thread through the, the Holy Word from Genesis through Revelation and how God's plan is all built around his holy time and explained to us through his holy time, why is this included, this Feast of Weeks, and what significance does it play? Last week, we heard a message from, from this pulpit, from, from our other pastor, Pastor Adrian Davis, a message entitled, Weapons of Mass Instruction. And in his introduction, he mentioned that we see through stories. And these stories and narratives help shape our understanding. So what I would like to do today, building off of that, is I'd like to walk through the biblical accounts of the Feast of Weeks to gain a better understanding of the significance of its significance in our walk. Why does God command us to count 50 days? Why does God command us to count seven full weeks from the time of the Days of Unleavened Bread culminating in the Feast of Pentecost? Nearly every other festival we keep, we just have the day marked on a calendar. Trumpets will be coming in the fall on the first day of the seventh month. We wait for that new moon, and when that when we, we know that it, when that is when that is scheduled to come, we have that that convocation. We know nine days later on the tenth of the month we keep what we what is described here for us as the day of atonement. But here we're actually told to count count off the days. So from that Sabbath in the middle of unleavened bread, beginning the following day. We've been told to count these off. 
and we're and we're doing that here as a, as a local group, and I hope you're doing that yourselves wherever you are. But how does this count? How does this time period, this holy period of these 50 days, connect with our purpose as first fruits? Building off of what the messages that, that we've been hearing over the course of the last number of weeks from Deacon Jan and from Pastor Adrian, how does, how does, what can we learn? How, what are the stories that we glean from the scriptures here? Help us understand the importance of this time period and how does it connect to our purpose as first fruits? That's what we're going to be looking at today. And how does this period of the Feast of the First Fruit, of Feast of Weeks, support this overarching theme that we've been studying lately? So as we begin, let's stay here in Leviticus 23. Let's go back to verse 9 and talk a little bit about this wave sheaf offering that I keep mentioning. In verse 9 of Leviticus 23, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. You shall offer on that day when you wave the sheaf a male lamb of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering made by fire to the Lord for a sweet aroma, and its drink offering shall be of wine, one-fourth of a hin. And you shall, neither, you shall eat neither bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain until the same day that you have brought an offering to your God, and it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and in all your dwellings. So this wave sheaf offering, that then the following verse that we've already read, tells us that that begins to count. And it is, begins on the day after the Sabbath, as we've read, during this Feast of Eleven Bread. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15 and get the context of what this wave sheaf offering refers to. Because it certainly begins our account. And as we read in Leviticus 23, the wave sheaf offering was the first of the first fruits. And it belonged to the priests after, the, after it was brought as an offering. So you brought your... On that day, you would bring the first of your first fruits, the initial plucking of your, of, your, of your harvest, and bring it to the priest and offer it as an offering to God. And then that offering became, belonged to the priests after that. But let's, let's go to the 1 Corinthians 15 here and start to put some context behind this. And verse 20, again, cutting into the context here, but... Verse, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And when we, can, when we consider what we just read back in Leviticus 23, this word first fruits is significant. So here, Christ in his resurrection, and if we, we don't have time today to do this, but I do invite you to read, uh, start back in verse 12 and, and read up through till probably verse 28. And then if you have time, the rest of the chapter, quite frankly. But really, this whole talking about Christ's resurrection being the foundation of our, our beliefs is really what this is talking about. So again, as, as Paul, at this part of the, part of the portion of the, the scripture that we're talking about, indicates that Christ himself, the resurrected Christ, has become the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep, i.e., the first of the first fruits, 
we know that that is the resurrection where those who have fallen asleep in Christ, who have died in, in the faith, will be resurrected to glory for purposes that we have been studying. But here, Jesus Christ and his resurrection, he becomes the first of the first fruits, which is what Moses, God through Moses, was, was talking about back in Leviticus 23. Let's go back to John 20, just, just sort of lock this down before we move on. John chapter 20. So Paul clarified here that the risen Christ is the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. In John 20, and I referenced this story back in the introduction, earlier on in the chapter, we see Christ was resurrected the end of the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was about to commence. And then uh, verse 11, Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And she, as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb, expecting to see her Lord, her Lord's body. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing and did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping and whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away for a proper burial. This, was, this, this tomb was to get them through the, the holy days, but they, they, she wanted to, to have a proper burial. Jesus said to her, Mary. And we know my we Christ earlier in the gospel account said, my sheep know my voice. They hear my voice and they know who it is. She immediately turned to him and said, Rabboni. She knew this was her risen Lord. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. In fact, the, the King James, in a more appropriate version, is not cling, but is actually touch. Cling means hang on. What he's saying is, don't touch me. Do not even touch me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. So this was so important here that he not be touched because he needed to present himself before the father as the perfect sacrifice. The one who came, fulfilled all the, the, the covenant uh, requirements of Israel, and now could, could uh, claim the promises that God had promised Israel as that perfect sacrifice. But it was important that he present himself to the Father and be accepted. It was upon the Father's acceptance that he fulfilled his, his and he could be, could be called the first of the first fruits. And that is this wave sheaf offering, that we, that we, the, the, the connection to that wave sheaf offering that we read back in Leviticus 23, where folks would bring down the first of their first fruits and offer it before the offer it to God to the priests to God before the priests and then once it was accepted it belonged to the priesthood and it is that wave sheaf offering that begins this count this 50 day count the 7 week count that culminates in the day of Pentecost so when we go back to Leviticus 23 I invite you to turn go back to where we were reading it in that context we then see 
the command in verse 15 to count. We've already read that, but with that, that in mind, we see this command to count for yourselves in verse 15, seven Sabbaths, and then also count 50 days. And that 50th day will culminate in this holy convocation that he then, beginning in verse 17, begins to discuss. But each day was to be counted, and each week was to be counted. Let's go back to Exodus 19. As we start to, as I mentioned in the introduction, start to look at some of these stories and begin to understand the teachings of God through some of these through some of these storylines that take place during this 50-day time period. And we see here in Exodus 19, God was preparing them to receive his law. Verse 1 tells us that it takes place in the third month. We have come to to believe this took place on the on the the fiftieth day, but from the biblical account, we can't quite say so. We we do say we do see that it is in the third month. But as we begin this, let's go down to verse ten. Verse ten. Moses told the words of the of the people to the Lord, and then in verse ten, the Lord said to Moses, "Go to the people, and consecrate them today and tomorrow." and let them wash their clothes, and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and he shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death, and not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. So when Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people and they washed their clothes, he said to the people, be ready for the third day and do not come near your wives. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that when all the people who were in the camp trembled and Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly, and the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder. And Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. We'll take a break in that story here. But what we see here is there was some specific and detailed preparation for God's people to be prepared to receive his law. God was coming into their presence, and to Moses, he was, give, he was going to give his people his law. But he acts with we know that God acts with precision timing. We believe the giving of the law took place on the, on, on the Feast of Pentecost because of its connection to Acts 2. And again, we, we, we can't quite say for sure, but what we do see, and what helps us understand that, is some of the same... Signs of the sky, so to speak, that we read. Back in verse 16, we see thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a sound of a trumpet was so loud and the blast of the trumpet and God descended in smoke and it was very clear God's presence was among them. And he was among them for a specific reason. They were coming into the presence of God to receive his law. And we see the seriousness 
with which preparing to come into God's presence was required. Very clear. Cleanse yourselves for three days. Stay pure during those three days. There's a sense of purity in, in the family that had to take place, and they were to wash their clothes, be pure, because they were going needed to come into the presence of God to receive, of all things, his law. Let's go to Acts 2 and see this connection. See these same wonders of the sky. God, com- God coming into their presence to give his law. And now this day that they were, and we'll get into some of that account or, that we went through earlier, but they were waiting for this day. They were told to wait and tarry and wait for the day that the Holy Spirit would be given to them on mass. In verse 1 of chapter 2 of Acts, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, They were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. And one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. We can can sideline the the tongues there, just for those who are are curious. This was not a, 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 as some would say, a, a miracle of people standing up and speaking in all these funny languages. This was the fact that so many people came from so many different places, and they heard the, the miracle was that wasn't the tongues, but it was the ears. They heard the message of God that was going to be conveyed to them through the apostle Peter in their own language. One man giving one message, and and several folks in various languages being able to to understand that message. But that's a sideline for for something else. Just with wanted to to address that here but we see here god's precision timing that god cut god through and we went back into genesis 1 and talked about this precision time with these with these seasons and these these this holy time that god has set aside this precision timing that god acts on his holy time the giving of the law and now here with the 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 receipt of the holy spirit and we see the connection here with the the thunderings and the 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 way god injects himself into our lives and presents himself so that we know for sure this is God. And we see this with the thunderings and the lightnings and the fire that occurred with both. When the, when these, this day of Pentecost had fully come. So what does that mean for the lead up in this Feast of Weeks, these, these 50 days prior? Let's now go back to read some of these stories and get the, the gist of, of the meaning of this, this time period. Acts chapter 1. So we covered, initially we've covered the wave sheaf offering, which begins the 50-day count. We've now covered the, when the day of Pentecost had fully come. What about this time period in between that we've been commanded to count on a daily and a weekly basis? We see an interesting, interesting exchange here in Acts 1, this taking place during this 50-day period, between Christ and the apostles. In verse 4, being assembled together with them, and verse 2 uh, tells us, actually, let's go back to verse 2. Until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he had presented himself alive after his suffering, 
by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days of this, of this, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So part of the 50-day process between Christ's death or resurrection and the Feast of Pentecost was his presentation of himself to his apostles and to the, to, to the, the core group. So there would be no doubt that there was a risen Christ. And then in verse 4, being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So their interest was, is this going to be the time that God will restore the kingdom to Israel, something we've been studying in depth over the last number of weeks and months. But there's an interesting fact about this question. Christ told them to wait for the Holy Spirit to come not many days from now. Yet their question was, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Absence of context, you would think they would be asking that this wouldn't be their first question. Their first question wouldn't be, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Their first question would be, how many days? Why do we have to wait? He brings up, you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Yet, they didn't ask anything about that number of days. They didn't ask, how long is it going to be? When is this going to happen? They immediately went to this concept of restoring the kingdom. absence of context, you would think the question would be, when? How many days do we have to wait for this Holy Spirit? But there had been a command for thousands of years as loyal Jews that they were following that from the time of the wave sheaf offering, they were counting 50 days. And God, acting with precision timing, they knew exactly what he was referring to. They knew exactly what he was referring to because they were in the middle of a count. They knew how many days they would have to wait. And that's why Christ didn't have to, to delineate the number of days when he said not many days from now. They knew exactly how many days because they were counting these 50 days. Christ's answer was, it's not for you to know when I'm coming back, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. His focus was on the timing of the receipt of the Holy Spirit. He was trying to get their minds off of the when of the re restoration of the kingdom of Israel because that wasn't the important part of the, 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 the equation at this point. His focus was on the when they would receive the Holy Spirit. And that was his focus, not many days from now. For all their curiosity, they didn't ask when because they didn't need to. They knew when. With God's precision timing, it would come when the day of Pentecost had fully come, when their 50-day count, 50 count would be up. We have the advantage of looking back and reading back into this because we know when the day of Pentecost came. But they weren't curious at all. 
because they didn't need to be. They were already counting. As generations upon generations of Israelites counted every year from the wave sheaf offering to the end of the 50 days. We read Acts, we already read verses 1 through 3. Let's now jump back to, well, let's go back to jump. Let's read that again. The former account I made, verse, verse 1 of Acts 1, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So in these 50 days, there was a 40-day period that Christ was with them before he, he ascended for the final time to his father. Let's go back to John 20 and connect some math here. We've read his ascension, or the, the account of verses 11 through 18. We've already read that. And that took place the morning after his resurrection on the first day of the week on what would be day one of the count. Verse 19 tells us that same day at evening, being the first of the week when the doors were shut when, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst of them. Pause there and note what we read back in Acts 1 he spent 40 days with them. So the first 40 days of this count was spent with Christ until he was ascended back to the Father for that final time. And we see why. Part of the reason for, for the preparation of God's people during this particular 50-day time period was their preparation as clear witnesses to the risen Christ. And we see Luke wrote that in the introduction to his second account there in, in Acts. Clear witnesses to a resurrected Christ who is now in spirit form dwelling amongst his people. So there would be no doubt, and we know as you read as you read the church history and you read just biblical history down through the the, the end of John's message, his, his last last uh, writings, the doubt that there was a resurrected Christ was something that was that continually came up as a problem. So Christ here made sure he spent 40 days with them during this Feast of Weeks to prepare them and prove to them and continue to prove to them beyond a shadow of a doubt that they were witnesses to a risen Christ. And he continued to talk to them, as we read back in Acts 1, what he did was continue to talk to them about the kingdom of God. He was preparing them and teaching them about the kingdom of God. And as we are here now in John 19, let's continue with this story. And we see special attention was given to the 11 who were left. We know Judas committed suicide after he realized what he had done. And there were 11 of his 12 disciples remaining. And Christ came and stood in the midst of them that same day at evening, as we read in verse 19, and we'll continue in verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. 
Now, Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see his hands, in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand in his, into his side, I will not believe. So Thomas here gets stuck with this moniker of being a doubting Thomas. But don't miss verse 20. Don't miss verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So interesting that Thomas gets tagged with this being doubting Thomas because everyone else believes but not Thomas. Christ showed them his hands and his side here too because it wasn't about trying to prove who wouldn't believe. It was trying to make sure that these 11 folks, these 11 gentlemen upon whom the foundation of the church would be built would have no doubt. So I'm going to show you my hands. I'm going to show you my side because I want to leave you with no doubt that I am your risen Lord. So as we consider this preparation, these 50 days that God God uses between the wave sheaf offering and the, the, the day of Pentecost, what we start to see is the preparation of his people for a specific purpose. We see Israel back in, we read in Exodus 19, being prepared to receive his law. We see here special attention, at least initially here, on these 11 disciples that would become the apostles. Let's go to Revelation 21. Because these 11 would be instrumental and hold key positions for God. And again, we're looking at the, the storyline taking place in Scripture during this Feast of Weeks. Verse 12, we'll cut into this. This is a description of the New Jerusalem. Also, for time's sake, we're going to start here at verse 12. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And if you've been listening to our messages over the last number of weeks, you, you, this, this is, has come part and parcel of the, the explanation of, of our, our deeper dive into the explanation of these holy days, whereby as first fruits we will be overseeing the physical kings and priests of Israel as they... As through as through these these door these gates of Israel, the folks who are coming to God will come to Him to worship through through these twelve gates. Now, what's important to see here is we've got these twelve gates in in this New Jerusalem, three on each side, and these gates all are labeled with one of the names of the twelve children of Israel. Verse fourteen then tells us. Now, the wall of the city had twelve foundations, so we've got each of these walls has a gate has 12 gates, three on each side. There are also 12 foundations. And on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So each apostle labeled as one of the foundations of the New Jerusalem with the 12 gates named for one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So back to Galatians 1. This is all part and parcel of preparing his people 
during these 50 days. And this was a, a special preparation that was being done here. We talk about these 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, we know when we go through Scripture, there were many, many apostles. There were the 11. There was Paul. There was Barnabas. There was Apollos. There was uh, any number of other people who were called apostles. As we And as we've studied here, but for the purposes of, of addressing it in this message, this word apostle is a Greek word meaning one sent forth. If you were sent forth, if I asked my daughter to go to the airport and pick up some visiting relatives, I would be sending her forth. She would be acting as an apostle for that time period, being sent forth to do something that, that I've asked her to do. We know here that Christ sent the 120 out. He sent the 70 out in pairs. These were all apostles doing the work of an apostle. But there was this special group that we read about in Revelation 21 called the Apostles of the Lamb, and there were 12. And this was a special group, upon, and it interesting and appropriately interesting that they were part of the foundation of the New Jerusalem because it was upon the foundation of the prophets and the apostles that the church is built. So, but we've got 11 in the room. We've got 11 in the room because we know Judas is no longer part of that group. Galatians 1 is where I think we pick up the 12th. Verse 11, Paul says, I make known to you, brethren, Galatians 1, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the tradition of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem who, to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned to Damascus. And then we also see, and there's a passage in 1 Corinthians that talks about Paul being taught by Christ for three years. So again, we go back to John 19. Let's go back to John, sorry, John 20. Sort of close the loop on this. As we see Christ using this Feast of Weeks to prepare his church. And in this case, he's preparing the foundation of his church, these 12 apostles of the Lamb, 11 of them, as he's preparing them here during this time period that he came back during these 40 days. And then, verse 26, we see the inclusion of, of Thomas. As a side note, we've talked about this here locally. Verse 22 we see when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, my opinion of what we see here and what we're seeing here is these 11 men were given the Holy Spirit, but personally by Christ. As specific apostles of the Lamb, they were chosen by Christ. Now, they were still to wait and tarry. And, and when we walk through the account in John 20, 21 and Acts 1, they were still to tarry and wait for the Holy Spirit to be given to the masses. But something special happened here. 
Something special happened here where they had the Holy Spirit breathed on them by Jesus Christ himself and setting them apart as apostles of the Lamb that we read about in, in Revelation, uh, Revelation 21 where we just read. Something special was happening here that Christ was spending his 40 days, 40 of these 50 days here, preparing his apostles so they could prepare the church for the work that was to be done. And this is that storyline that we're seeing here in the Feast of Weeks. John 21, we see here some healing going on. Again, Paul or Christ preparing his church using these, these, this time period. John 21, we see this account here with Peter. And recall here that Peter, his last interaction with Jesus Christ was as Christ was hanging on the stake having been betrayed by Peter three times, locking eyes with him, and Peter having that, that feeling of what had just come over him in betraying his Lord. So Christ here takes some time to heal this connection. Because again, as Peter was going to be one of these foundational apostles, some of the time spent together during this Feast of Weeks needed to heal that connection. And we see this story beginning in verse 15. We've gone over the story many, many, many times. But as they, as they take some time to go fishing, they catch nothing. We see the account here back in verse 6 with Christ telling them to cast the net on the other side. And all of a sudden they came up with this net load of fish and immediately knew that this was their Lord. We see that in verse 7. The disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, this, this is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer gar garment and plunged into the sea. And the other disciples came in the, in the little boat, dragging the net with the fish. And as soon as they came to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of this fish which you have caught. And then they go to have this breakfast together. And what this breakfast does, as meals tend to do, is bring God's people together and prepare them for things. And here, here was a meal that they were going to have together, this breakfast, so that then Christ could build off of this and solidify these, these guys as his foundational apostles. And we see that account. We've gone over that numerous times. Verses 15 through, through 21, we won't take time to do that here, but I invite you to read that through, where Christ three times asks him if he loves him. And each time Peter... Uh, Peter's response, he gave him his command to feed my sheep, to tend to my sheep, and to feed my sheep. Again, preparing his people for work following the, the, the day of Pentecost. The time period that we see here is chock full of preparation. We don't have time today to walk through every single, every single account. We go back then into Acts 1. We've read the first part of Acts 1. We drop down to verse 9. We come to the end of these 40 days of Christ being here on earth. And When he had spoken in Acts 1 verse 9, when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, 
who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So again, they've spent 40 days with him. They're coming now to the end. And this, as they watch him disappear for the final time, these angels that are there, two men, we assume them to be angels, reminding them to get to work. The, the, the inclination here is that they stood gazing at him, and, and who wouldn't stand gazing at Christ disappearing from their sight, right, right, being ascending, ascending up into the heavens, but reminding them that they're here to do a work, that he was here to prepare them for a work. He came back, spent 40 days with them. Now it was time to get to work. We then see, verse 12, that they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. And had and verse 13, when they had entered the, this room, that they, they had entered into the upper room where they were, Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, Simon, and Judas, the son of James. And they continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So as we count these days down, we have these 40 days that Christ spent. Then we have what seems to be 10 final days without Christ. And what did they do? They came together as a tight-knit, tight-knit unit, those who were, were waiting for the Holy Spirit to come, who knew that in 10 short days' time, the Holy Spirit would be given to them. They continued to pray together. They continued with one accord to come together, as, the, as it says here, with one accord in prayer, in supplication, eating together, fellowshipping together, making sure that they were of one mind, that they were a fully prepared unit for the coming of that Holy Spirit in 10 days' time. We then come down to the, the choosing of Matthias, and I'd like to go back and talk about this choosing of Matthias because it looks to me here, to the, to the untrained eye or to the naked eye, that this was the 12th man chosen. Paul calls himself an apostle, he, what, the least of the apostle, but an apostle, but here, as we talked about, there were many, many apostles chosen. But as we walk through it here, what sets Matthias apart from the other 11 and from Paul is that Matthias wasn't personally chosen by Jesus Christ. And again, this is my, my opinion, but as I read through this, what was being done here was not choosing the 12th apostle for this tight-knit group of foundational apostles but it was preparing them to be an even number of group to be sent out. As we read back in Acts 1, or in verse 8, you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, to Judea, Judea and, and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And we know that Christ always sent them out in pairs, and the absence of Judas meant that there was an odd number that could not be sent out in pairs. So they themselves, as we see here in verse 23, they proposed to... Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice and Matthias, and they prayed and said, You, O Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell. Judas was never, ever a capital A apostle. He never was. What he was was part of that group of 12 that was that was learning to 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 fulfill, learning to following Christ as part of the, the group of disciples. 
And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So again, part of this was all preparing God's people for work following the, the Feast of Pentecost. They were to wait. They were to come together, wait for these 50 days, develop this unity of, of mind and body that, would, that comes with being God's people, eat together, study together, so that when the day of Pentecost would fully come, they would be ready for the Holy Spirit to come and to convert what ended up being 3,000 people. So much happens when we read the storyline through this Feast of Weeks. When we go back to Exodus 13, we've tried to take a, a summary view of that first Feast of Weeks following Christ's resurrection. Equally important is this Feast of Weeks that we find Israel's first Feast of Weeks after the Exodus. And we certainly don't have time to dig into this too much. But in doing so, I encourage you in the remaining two weeks to walk through and read and read some of the, the, the stories that take place during this, this time frame. We begin back in Exodus 14 with the Red Sea crossing. The, and we've made mention of this in our, our daily count in our chat room. The fact that manna, chapter 16, talks to us about the, the introduction of manna to the children of Israel and all the lessons that we can read through that. When we think about the coming of manna, I mean, we don't have time to, to do a deep dive as we did with the New Testament, but I just want to cover some of these passages here. Verse 4. The Lord said to Moses in Exodus 16, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people showed and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And it will be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in it, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. Why? Because of the Sabbath. God wasn't going to rain manna down on the Sabbath. They needed to learn to prepare for the Sabbath. And Moses and Aaron said to all of the children of Israel, At evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your complaints against the Lord. And what are we that you should complain against us? And Moses said, This shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening, and in the morning bread to the full. For the Lord hears your complaints which you make against him. So God's people complain. God answers with bread. He answers with meat. But with it comes a test. Are they prepared to follow him? And we see, unfortunately, that they don't. That some decide to come out on day seven to collect, and there's nothing there. We see other indications. Some decide to hold, hold stuff over from days one to five, and it ends up stinking. Again, God uses this time period to prepare his people for active duty. Numbers. You can write this down. Numbers, at least the first 10 chapters of Numbers, take place during the Feast of Weeks. You go to Numbers Numbers 1, it introduces it as the first day of the second month. If you go to Numbers chapter 1. In Numbers 9, and again, just make note of this, Numbers 9 is the 14th day of the second month. Numbers 10 is the 20th day of the second month. Lots of, but this was, the, this was in year 2. The Bible is chock full of preparatory stories 
of his people being prepared, the covenant people, whether it be the children of Israel in the Old Testament or the church, part of the renewed covenant in the New Testament following Christ's resurrection, being prepared during this time period leading up to culminating in the Feast of Pentecost when they were to wait for that Holy Spirit to come so that they would then be released to go into Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth to be witnesses to Christ. But it takes preparation. It takes intense preparation. It takes, it takes unity of mind, unity of spirit in the body of Christ to be prepared to then go out and fulfill that mission. As you're studying, you can include Matthew 28. We don't have time to turn there. Mark 16, Luke 24. These are all accounts that take place during these Feast, feast of Weeks and ones that we can glean numerous lessons from God that takes place during this time. We're going to finish up here on Acts 2. As we do, as you're turning there, connecting it back to the messages that we've been hearing and learning. The Feast of Weeks, this 50-day time period, in part, represents the selection of of the group of firstfruits that will be tasked with teaching God's covenant people of Israel when he removes the blinders from their eyes and prepares them to be these physical kings and priests in the millennium that we've been studying. Selecting this group, group of firstfruits began, and that lesson was taught to us back when the very first wave sheaf offering was presented, where people would bring their first of their firstfruits to the priest and offer it before God to then be accepted by God and and then for use by the priesthood. And then that connection to Jesus Christ being that, that wave sheaf offering, fully a, a perfect sacrifice presented to the Father, having shown what it, what it can mean to follow God perfectly and to, to take upon him the, the, the rewards that come with following God. So we have studied, we've been studying God's feast days over the last number of weeks and connecting them to, to the, the active call of duty that God is calling upon us to do. The implication here and the importance of the Feast of Weeks is this time period that we get to prepare for this together, that we, we come together and we learn and we study and, and we prepare so that when the time comes for us to be released to fulfill his mission, we, we are of one mindset to do that. As we heard last week at the conclusion of the message last week, we can't train people. We can't be in a position to train and teach if we don't first start with ourselves. This is the lesson of the Feast of Weeks. This gives us an opportunity to start with ourselves in an isolated fashion, waiting tarrying is the, the lesson that we see from Jesus Christ. Go into that upper room, tarry together, become of one mind and of one accord, and when I release you, you then go and witness for me to the, all the ends of the earth. So like the children of Israel, like the apostles, this time period pictures a time of intense personal and internal preparation. Not just personal, but communal preparation. 
where we prepare together and wait to be unleashed into the world to preach this gospel of peace we heard about last week in the church age, this period of time we call the church age as part of the covenant people of God. So when we study that, when we go back to Exodus and we review that and we get into uh, John and we combine all that we've studied today, now let's take go to Acts 2 and finish here in Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost in verse 1 had fully come, they were all with one accord and in one place. That takes preparation. That takes intense study. That takes intense agape, self-sacrifice, putting your own needs to the side for the needs of the group, coming together as part of the group to put aside anything that, that could derail us, coming together as one accord in one place, preparing to receive the Holy Spirit as they did and then be released to, to follow through on Christ's command that they would be witnesses for him to all the ends of the earth. We have two weeks left until the day we've been counting down for the last five weeks has fully come. And then we come together again in one accord to receive further instruction from our master and our God. Let's not waste these two weeks. Let's take these two weeks, these 15 more days seriously. Let's prepare together. Let's prepare individually. Let's prepare together to be the people God needs us to be. I invite you to rise. We'll close with prayer uh, while we say goodbye to our friends on the online, and then we'll continue with the rest of our service. So I'll invite Deacon Jan back up. Father in heaven, we are so grateful to be your people. We praise you on this holy Sabbath day, this day that you have arranged from creation for us to come together on a weekly basis to meet the appointment that you have set for us this day to come together to worship you, to hear your word spoken to us. Great God, as we look to your word for instruction, we see the command to count. We see the command the command to count 50 days. We see the command to count seven weeks. And we see the command to tarry, to come together in one accord and to prepare. Great God, these are all microcosms of what it means to prepare ourselves together to be unleashed, to take your gospel of peace to the world, to be witnesses to you, to let there be no doubt that there is one way to eternity, there is one path to redemption, and that it is through Jesus Christ, our risen Savior. Great God, as we Work through these Feast of Weeks together. We ask you to be with us. Put your spirit amongst us. Help us to continue to, to come together, to be of one mind, to embrace the unity that, that your body provides. And give us courage, God, to continue to study, continue to, continue to have our minds open to your truth, and to prepare to witness for you, to spread that gospel of peace that we have been studying. Great God, we, we thank you for this. We ask you to bless those who are joining us from afar. We ask you to place a special blessing upon them in that they ha do not have the ability to fellowship 
live with people on a weekly basis. We thank you for this opportunity to serve them through technology. But great God, put a special blessing upon them. Keep all of your people focused. Give them the courage to be witnesses for you. Give them courage to dig into their Bibles, to study, and prepare us for the return of your Son. We thank you, holy, righteous, and perfect Father, for allowing us into your presence. We ask you to accept our worship. We close this portion of our service thanking you through the name of our soon-coming King, our elder brother, and the bridegroom that we are waiting for, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Amen.